You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 174 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Jeb Stewart's capture of John Pope's dispatch book at Catlett Station on August 23rd made it clear to Robert E. Lee that he had only a few days left in which to strike Pope before Union reinforcements from the Army of the Potomac began to arrive on the scene in numbers large enough to change the balance of forces in northern Virginia. So far, Lee had held the initiative since he took the field from Richmond, and in less than one week, he had succeeded in maneuvering Pope's Army of Virginia back from the Rapidan to the Rappahannock. But what Robert E. Lee really wanted to do was to attack and overwhelm all or part of Pope's command, and at this he had been frustrated. The heavy rains that had derailed Jackson's advance across the Rappahannock at White Sulphur Springs on August 22nd, 23rd, had slowed down both armies. Despite Jeb Stuart's raid, the opposing forces still faced each other across the river in a continuing stalemate. The only thing that had changed was that their center of gravity had shifted northward from Rappahannock Station to White Sulphur Springs. Pope, after failing to strike Stonewall Jackson's bridgehead at White Sulphur Springs, had established his headquarters at Warrenton and was guarding the Rappahannock as far north as Waterloo Bridge. To Pope, it seemed that the tide of the campaign was about to swing back in his favor. Heinzelman's and Porter's Corps from the Army of the Potomac were within supporting distance, and all Pope needed to do was to hold his position until those troops came up. Then the two united Union armies could take the initiative against the Confederates. Robert E. Lee knew that he was at the crisis of the campaign. Everything so far had gone in his favor. McClellan had left the peninsula, and Pope had withdrawn from the Rapidan. That meant Richmond was safe for the moment, and that the Yankees had been maneuvered out of central Virginia in time for the local farmers to begin their harvest. But Lee now needed to do something about Pope before McClellan's entire army arrived and the blue tide began to flow southward again. Despite the frustrating stalemate along the Rappahannock, 
Robert E. Lee was determined to maintain the initiative as long as the window of opportunity remained open, that is, before McClellan's troops arrived in large numbers. So Lee determined to continue to pressure the Army of Virginia in the hope that Pope might make a mistake. If he did, then Lee would be ready to capitalize upon it. On August 24th, Lee wrote to Jackson's headquarters and proposed that Stonewall make a wide flanking movement around Pope's right and then march through Thoroughfare Gap in the Bull Run Mountains in order to strike east and fall on Pope's supply base at Manassas Junction. This bold move would hopefully cause Pope to pull back from his line on the Rappahannock. If that happened, then Longstreet, who would hold his position along the river, would be ready to strike the withdrawing Yankees at some vulnerable point. Lee's plan was indeed bold and also risky. If Jackson unexpectedly ran into part of McClellan's command as it moved toward the front, he would be delayed enough for the operation to be jeopardized. There was also the possibility that Pope might figure out what was happening and move quickly to strike Stonewall before Lee and Longstreet could come up. But Stonewall was excited by Lee's plan and reportedly used his boot to trace some of the proposed movements in the dirt. Longstreet also approved of the operation, so the necessary orders were issued on the 24th. Jackson was to move out the next morning with about 27,000 men, This would be the divisions of Dick Yule, A.P. Hill, and William Tolliver, as well as Jeb Stewart's cavalry. He was to march northwest, cross the Rappahannock, and, quote, move around the enemy's right so as to strike the Orange and Alexandria Railroad in his rear. Longstreet, in the meantime, was to divert Pope's attention, quote, by threatening him in front and to follow Jackson as soon as the latter should be sufficiently advanced. Lee's most critical decision would be when and how to have Longstreet move. Lee's decision of necessity would be based on Jackson's progress. And so, in order to keep accurately informed of Stonewall's progress, Lee assigned 25 specially selected troopers from the Black Horse Cavalry to serve as couriers between the two wings of the army. Jackson had his troops awakened at 3 a.m. on August 25th to begin their march around Pope's right flank. Each man was to have three days' supply of cooked rations and 60 rounds of ammunition. Knapsacks were to be left behind, and all wagons were sent to the rear except for ambulances and the ordnance trains. Stonewall meant business. Orders came down for, quote, no straggling. Every man must keep his place in ranks. In crossing streams, officers are to see that no delay is occasioned by removing shoes or clothes. The column was led out of camp by Captain James Boswell, Jackson's chief engineer. Boswell was one of the few officers the secret of Stonewall had briefed about his plans. Yule's division marched first, followed by Hill's light division, and then Tolliver's. Some 80 guns and 21 batteries accompanied the column, as did the 2nd Virginia Cavalry. Jeb Stewart himself, with the rest of his horsemen, was to join Jackson en route. The column crossed the upper Rappahannock at Henson's Mill Ford, which the Yankees had neglected to guard. Later, as the sun sank toward the horizon, Jackson halted near Salem after a march of 15 miles. Little did the men know at that time that Salem was the midpoint on their itinerary, being located 15 miles northwest of Manassas Junction. 
Stonewall supposedly climbed up an up onto a large rock near Salem in order to watch the column march by. At the sight of Jackson standing there, the men began cheering, which Stonewall quickly put a stop to, for fear it might be heard by any nearby Yankees. The men responded by silently doffing their hats instead as they continued to march along past their already legendary commander. Stonewall was visibly moved by this display and declared, Who could not conquer with troops such as these? John Pope, who had been managing his campaign reasonably well up to this point, dropped the ball on August 25th. By noon, he received information from a number of sources that a large body of rebels was marching northwest. Pope at once concluded that Jackson was headed for the Shenandoah Valley and began preparing Irvin McDowell's corps to follow him. Then, in an apparent change of mind, Pope began shifting his remaining troops to the south, probably in order to better get at Longstreet. McDowell was to remain at Warrenton, and Franz Siegel was directed to march away from the river to Fayetteville, six miles south of Warrenton. Nathaniel Banks received orders to head even farther south, marching past the railroad at Bealton in the direction of Kelly's Ford. It's not terribly important you search out each of those places in the handy Civil War atlas that we're sure you have open in front of you, but what is important is that you understand Pope guessed wrong as far as Stonewall's objective and started to issue orders moving his troops hither and yon, some in the wrong direction entirely. Okay, so... Late in the day, once Pope had more information that the marching Confederates were at Salem, he at last decided to send out a probe in that direction. Oddly, though, Pope didn't send out a strong force of cavalry towards the place, but instead ordered McDowell to cross the Rappahannock at White Sulphur Springs at dawn the next day and find out what rebel troops were in that vicinity. Pope was still convinced, as he telegraphed Halleck, that Stonewall was heading for the Shenandoah Valley, and that the enemy troops at Salem were just a flank guard. That is, Pope thought it was simply a detachment guarding Jackson's eastern flank as he marched west toward the valley. Pope's waffling on August 25th was just the sort of mistake Robert E. Lee was hoping for. Pope totally misread Stonewall's intentions, and during the day, the Union commander shuffled his defensive line on the Rappahannock and moved his troops hither and yon, but at no time did Pope actually shift any units toward the biggest threat to his army, Jackson's Column at Salem. Pope wasn't the only federal commander who was flustered on the 25th. The arrival of McClellan's troops in northern Virginia caused a logistical nightmare. Halleck was supposed to be supervising the operation, but he was unable to manage it. The problem became all the more acute when Little Mac and some of his key officers began giving only passive cooperation to Halleck and Pope. We won't get into the whole mess that the Army of the Potomac's arrival in northern Virginia turned into, but the units were mostly disembarking at, at Alexandria across the Potomac from Washington, and this huge influx of troops and their forwarding to the front required careful superintending, and Halleck failed to provide it. Part of the problem was also that Pope had scooped up all the available train cars, over 200 of them, and concentrated them at Warrenton Junction for use in case he needed them. 
When he became aware that this was causing difficulties, Pope promptly began releasing these trains, but the damage had already been done. There were so many demands for transport that the extremely capable Colonel Herman Hopped, who was in charge of the Army's military railroads, couldn't keep track of where all his trains were. His job became even more difficult when a newly arrived brigadier, Samuel Sturgis, stopped a train outside Alexandria and appropriated it for his own troops. Hopped then intercepted the train in person, armed with direct orders from Halleck that no other officer was to interfere with Hopped's trains. Hopped told Sturgis that the latter's inconsiderate act would disorder the Army's train schedules and delay all of Pope's reinforcements. To that, Sturgis replied bluntly, quote, I don't care for John Pope, one pinch of owl dung, end quote. Owl dung, Tracy. Okay, well. He said, I don't care for John Pope, one pinch of owl dung. Okay, well. Robert E. Lee's gamble, then, was beginning to pay off. Pope's misreading of Stonewall Jackson's intentions gave Stonewall an open line of march into Pope's rear, and the problems Hopped was having with his trains would give Jackson an easier time at Manassas Junction than he would have had otherwise. In addition, Pope decided to keep his troops at Kelly's Ford stationary until he received specific orders from Halleck, who at the moment didn't know where Pope's headquarters was located. And then McClellan was hardly moving heaven and earth to forward the Army of the Potomac to the front. All in all, the Union command structure was beginning to break down. Owl dung, Tracy. <laughs> yes, thank you, Rich. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Stonewall Jackson continued his march early on the 26th, knowing that he had another full day's trek ahead of him to get into the enemy's rear. His troops and most of their officers, as usual, had no idea where they were going. Nevertheless, the march proceeded smoothly, with only one major potential obstacle in their path, thoroughfare gap in the Bull Run Mountains. If the Federals were holding the gap in force, Jackson might not be able to break through to accomplish his mission. Even if the gap were just held by a small enemy force, it would throw a wrench into Lee's plans, since Pope would at last be informed as to Stonewall's true line of march. To determine the situation at Thoroughfare Gap, Stonewall rushed his cavalry forward at first light on the 26th. 
the Confederate horsemen found there wasn't a Yankee inside, much to Jake's, Jackson's delight. Things continued to go smoothly as the day progressed. Jeb Stewart and the rest of the cavalry had left their position on the Rappahannock at 2 a.m. and caught up with Jackson at mid-afternoon. At that time, Stonewall's flanking march still hadn't encountered any opposition. Pope's relative inactivity to this point on August 26th is almost as difficult to explain as his confused maneuvering on the 25th. He still assumed Jackson was headed for the Shenandoah Valley and still didn't even bother to send any cavalry towards Salem to confirm his assumption. Instead, he held most of his force along the line of the upper Rappahannock all day. Pope's continued presence and strength along the Rappahannock made Robert E. Lee feel more secure about Stonewall Jackson's safety, but it also left him in a dilemma about when to move Longstreet's wing. Lee had been alert to the possibility that Pope might withdraw from the river because of Jackson's flanking march, and if that occurred, then Longstreet would cross the Rappahannock and attack Pope's withdrawing force. But as affairs developed, Pope didn't withdraw, and his line along the river was too strong to attack directly. In addition, as Longstreet pointed out, any attempt to aid Stonewall by marching straight across the river would run the risk of being delayed indefinitely by Union rear guards or defensive stands. Instead, Longstreet suggested, it would be better to follow Jackson's line of march, which would reunite the army and offer Lee more options. Lee agreed, and late in the afternoon, he issued orders for Longstreet to begin his march towards Salem. Pope later claimed he felt no concern for his rear at Manassas Junction because he had ordered Hopped to direct a division of troops there, and he had also ordered the posting of strong pickets along the railroad line. However, there's little evidence that Pope actually ordered Hopped to post a division at Manassas Junction, and if the Union commander expected the railroad line to be guarded, he made no effort to confirm that this was being done. All this evidence strongly suggests that Pope was simply too inattentive to his rear, no matter how much he tried to cover his tracks later. As a result, the only troops guarding Pope's rear were three companies of infantry at Bristow Station and three more companies of infantry, a battery of artillery, and a green regiment of cavalry at Manassas. What that meant was that Stonewall Jackson's flanking march was about to catch John Pope with his pants down. Jackson faced a key decision when his march reached Gainesville at around 2 o'clock that afternoon of August 26th. His objective was the huge Union Supply Depot at Manassas Junction, but he was well aware that spot might be heavily fortified and full of Union troops. And so he thought it would be wiser to first cut the railroad line at an easier site, one that would probably not be so well guarded. For this reason, Stonewall decided to strike first at Bristow Station and then try to destroy the nearby bridge over Kettle Run if he could. He could then turn to deal more advantageously with Manassas Junction, four miles to the northeast of Bristow. Colonel T.T. Munford's 2nd Virginia Cavalry managed to swoop in and secure Bristow Station. Munford reported to Jackson that he had killed or wounded nine of the enemy and captured 43, including the lieutenant colonel of the 4th New York Cavalry, at the cost of only three Confederate wounded. 
When Henry Forno's Louisiana Brigade came up, Munford and Forno set about disrupting the rail line. Not long before the station's fall, a train had gone through heading northeast from Manassas Junction, so Munford and Forno posted some troops to wait and try to capture another. They wouldn't have to wait very long. The problem facing the rebels, however, was how to actually catch a Yankee train. They soon saw one coming from the southwest from the direction of Warrenton Junction and Catlett Station. Some of the Confederates had hastily placed some spare rails across the tracks, but the train's engineer, seeing the danger, refused to slow down and hit the rails, scattering them in all directions. The train then continued safely toward Manassas Junction. Before long, another train was seen approaching. This time the rebels had more time to cover the track with obstructions, including a bumper from the dead end of a nearby spur line. In case these didn't do the job, a detachment of infantry from the 21st North Carolina drew up alongside the tracks in order to give the locomotive's cab a volley. The Confederate infantrymen fired when the train drew close, and then the engine hit the obstructions on the track. When all the dust finally settled, the train had ground to a stop. The rebels were still admiring their handiwork when the next train came up. Its engineer came on at full speed and smashed into the rear of the stopped train. As one Confederate officer put it, quote, the general effect was quite destructive. The wreckage of the two trains made the tracks through the station impassable, and it would require some time and effort to get them cleared. The Confederates' only regret was that the rail cars were empty transports and didn't contain any rations or other food for their hungry bellies. Jackson's success to this point prompted him to go for still more. He learned from prisoners captured at Bristow Station that the huge supply depot at Manassas Junction, just a few miles up the tracks, was guarded by only a few hundred men. Literally mountains of supplies, equipment, and foodstuff were there for the taking. Stonewall had only to push some of his tired troops there before the Yankees became alarmed and summoned aid or started to burn everything. Stonewall knew that enemy troops guarding Manassas Junction probably already knew about the fall of Bristow Station from the news brought by the train crew from the first locomotive that had broken through Munford and Forno's first flimsy barrier just a short while earlier. Although the garrison at Manassas would at first likely suppose it was just a Confederate raid that had hit Bristow, Stonewall would still need to act at once if he intended to capture the depot intact. Jackson would also need to be wary of Union troops approaching from the southwest, because after the second and third trains had been wrecked at Bristow, a fourth train had come up, but had successfully backed away when its engineer saw the flames and wreckage on the tracks ahead. He would soon be spreading the alarm down at Catlett Station and Warrenton Junction, and there would be no telling how the Yankees would react after that. Jackson was at first uncertain what troops he should send to Manassas. Ewell's and Hill's men were closest, since they were at or near Bristow, but most were exhausted from marching approximately 54 miles in several days. Tolliver's division was at the end of the column and so might be a little bit fresher from marching a few less miles, but it was significantly farther from the target. While Stonewall was pondering the situation, Brigadier General Isaac Trimble came up and offered to take Manassas with his two favorite regiments, the 21st Georgia and 21st North Carolina, his twin 21st. 
Jackson agreed to Trimble's request, even though the two regiments combined had only 500 men. However, Stonewall thought better of the situation soon after Trimble departed at 9 p.m., and he sent Jeb Stuart with a portion of his cavalry to reinforce Trimble and told Stuart to, quote, take command of the expedition. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The American War, A History of the Civil War Era by Gary W. Gallagher and Joan Waugh. It's been a while since we've recommended a general history of the war, and this is a relatively new one. Well, it came out in 2015, but we've just got around to reading it, and wow, it's a good one, so we're happy to make it a recommendation. And it's really pretty amazing how much Civil War goodness Gallagher and Waugh have packed into about 250 pages of text. So that's The American War, A History of the Civil War Era by Gary W. Gallagher and Joan Waugh. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We have one new member of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank this week, Lorenz. Thank you. And then we want to give our annual plug for Spiritwood Music's Christmas Music. We thank them, as always, for their permission to use the song Midnight on the Water as the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. But if you're listening to this in real time, that is here in December, then you should do yourself a favor and check out Spiritwood's Christmas Music. Yeah, they have some really, really lovely instrumental Christmas music, and you can find it on iTunes or at Amazon or Google Play or at their website, and we'll put links up on our website. Okay, I think that's it, so... So, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue our march towards Second Manassas. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.